Hey, everybody. We're doing this a little bit early this week because Shannon is in the deep field, well, camping anyway, and we can't talk to her. So this week, we're going to talk about our favorite national parks. We hope you enjoy it. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing good, John. I'm getting ready for my big trip, and I've been reading up on national parks, which is a super fun thing to do. You know, after we've been talking about all the places that you get to go visit, it made me miss being in the field a little bit. So I did pull out my park guide and my roadside geology books and was flipping through them. <laughs> Longingly, right? <laughs> right. And I learned one thing about myself, which is I must really like geology created by salt domes. <laughs> so automatically, that already tells me, even though I suspect it anyway, that your favorite national parks are out west. They are. Uh, <laughs> both of the ones that I picked, though, let's face it, there's a lot of national parks that I could say are really great. Oh, yeah. But the two that uh, I picked to talk about today are both out west. In <laughs> fact, both of them are in Utah. <laughs> well, there are a lot of national parks there, so um, I'm eager to hear which ones you picked because one of mine is there as well. Um, a lot of mine are out west. I haven't been to a lot of national parks out east. Have you been yet since you moved to Pennsylvania? You know, I haven't. We have a ton of state parks near me, but no national parks in my immediate vicinity. You should get out more. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's dive in. What is your first park pick? Okay, well, I'll start with the northernmost park that I certainly love a lot, and that is Glacier National Park. Oh, that is a park that I have always wanted to go to, but have not made it to yet. Oh, uh, it! I went there and to do field work actually, um, fifteen years ago or so. I was uh, someone's field assistant, and it was right outside of Glacier, and we'd been camping up there in Sunset Canyon, uh, on the east side of Glacier. And one day we decided to go into Glacier, and it was just the most amazing landscape ever. Like the mountains in Montana, the Northern Rockies are unbelievable and what they've done at glacier is just it's a really awesome place it's where i saw the first grizzly i've ever seen in the wild so <laughs> how did that work out for you since uh, you well, love bears now i'm yes exactly <laughs> so ever since i saw that it was a mama and her two cubs but they were two years old because cubs frequently stay with the parents for more than a year and so they look like three volkswagens sitting out in the field they were terrifying <laughs> and the cubs started playing and so then it was like two volkswagens battling and ever since then i've been scared to death of bears so <laughs> ah i did not know the origin story after carrying bear spray for you for many years <laughs> it's so it's so true um we have a we have a cute little bear running around camp actually just an hour before the that we sat down to do this um the little bear ran through but he's just a tiny black bear so it's nothing nothing like those volkswagen grizzlies up in glacier um <laughs> but what's really neat about glacier i mean montana it's obviously you know really remote but there's just everything there you know the landscape clearly is formed by glaciers they were during the pleistocene all kinds of really neat you know areas and cirques that you can see there's still glaciers there but they're rapidly melting so the number of glaciers since 
uh, glacier became a park in 1910 has diminished significantly. Yeah, well, I mean, but it is a absolutely huge park. Uh, I just looked it up, and it's over one million acres. It is, and much of that is basically only backcountry. There's really only one road um, that goes from east to west sort of straight through, well, one road worth taking, which is the going to the Sun Road. And um, that was built by the WPA. And it's an unbelievable feat of engineering because it goes up and over uh, Logan Pass and going to the Sun Mountain, which is 9,642 feet in elevation. And it's... It doesn't open until the end of June some years. This year, I haven't even checked, but it's they got a lot of snow, so I'm imagining it's still closed right now. And to, to think about having to plow this road that goes up and over the pass that goes through <laughs> Glacier is just terrifying. They have, um, they have little markers that are probably like 12, 15 feet high that are on either side of the road and we asked what they were for and it's so that the plow trucks in the in the beginning of summer can find where the road is wow (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) exactly i remember seeing a few years ago that they were testing a technology uh, i have to bring the technology in of course but it was basically like a heads-up display kind of like you would have in a fighter plane oh my gosh that would project on the windshield of the trucks where the road is wow so that they could plow driving on basically a virtual road projected on their windshield that is terrifying oh they have those those same problems in rocky mountain national park as well because i mean these really high elevations they stay you know socked in for a long time and i just i can't imagine the guts that those guys have to have to just go out and hope for the best (laughs) yeah yeah you'd have to uh Really trust your driving and trust your equipment. And if you are using the electronic aids, trust your electronics. Because what I've been saying about self-driving cars for a while is it gives blue screen of death a whole new meaning. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) We all know I'm really bad at that technology. So, um, mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've had uh, some audio issues getting this going today. (laughs) As always. Um, It's not Windows fault, so you need to back off. But... (laughs) <laughs> um, what, what else is really neat about Glacier? Just like you said, it's a huge, huge park. And the scenery is really unrivaled. Um, and I've been reading my Geology of National Parks book about it. And one of the cool things is that it straddles the Continental Divide. And they talk about, basically, due to its large amount of area and its location, it Waterton Glacier, which is the official name of the park because it's actually up through Canada as well, um, it makes its own weather, is what they say. And so, hmm. yeah, you can really get some interesting mixes of weather up in the mountains there that you don't see, you know, sort of on the plains in Montana. Um, they've had snow recorded in every month of the year. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you would expect, you know, there's a large rain shadow effect. So the western slopes um, get really a lot a lot of snow during the winter time. I mean, you know, tens and hundred of feet or something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at some pictures online. Like I said, I've never been there, but have always wanted to go. And it looks like pretty much layer cake geology that's tilted and then uh, carved up. 
it's really a classic place to go to look at uh, glacial landscapes. A lot of my pictures when I teach my glacial portion of my intro geology classes, I use you know my own pictures from uh, from Glacier National Park. Um, one of the cool things about it is, you know, there's obviously a whole lot of Native American tribes that are still uh, around Glacier and have been there for many years, and they call uh, Glacier the backbone of the world. And that backbone is this ariette, so it's just a sort of a steep, um, and it looks exactly like a backbone if you think about mountains on a map. And the steep, glacially carved landscape basically is the backbone of the world for them. Basically, the steep, glacially carved landscape, you know, has a lot of the origin stories for these northern Native American tribes. And it's really interesting. They're in the visitor center. They have a lot of work with the Native American tribes that are local to them. And they have put some of the stories and some of sort of the origins of the really unique landscape. And it's a really cool visitor center to sort of get some of the backstory of the human population around this really rugged part of the U.S. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like a really great place. I hope I do uh, do eventually get to go. Uh, yes. I'll mention one more thing because this is one of my favorite parts about Glacier. So my favorite rocks are there, and this is the Belt Supergroup, and it is all these sedimentary rocks. So, you know, I, I love sedimentary rocks more than anything. And they were deposited in the late Precambrian. So they're these really old sedimentary rocks, and you can see these ancient like cross beds that are still preserved in the belt, which is one of the major, um, the major rock groups that are exposed in glaciers. So that's another reason it's my favorite, but now it's your turn. Yeah. Lots, <laughs> lots of cool sedimentary features, but well, I would say my favorite has to be Arches National Park. I thought you might say that. <laughs> and I knew that I was going to like Arches when the first time I went, I did not even make it to the visitor center before <laughs> I had pulled off to the side of the road, hopped out of the car, and was taking pictures like crazy. Uh, <laughs> Those rocks there are super photogenic. I will totally agree. <laughs> they are, and right across from the visitor center, as you're driving to it, if you pull off the road like you're going to go into the park, stop and look to your left you'll see this series of inline faults that have maybe a couple of meters of offset, but they are perfect for teaching because there's this giant layer that runs through them that's much darker than the surrounding rock. And it's just textbook example of faulting and even like a mini Horst and Graben in it. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, they have a really excellent visitor center arches too. I remember watching the movies there talking about, you know, the formation of the arches and erosion and frost wedging and all these awesome both chemical and mechanical erosion that takes place to create the really unique landscape that is, you know, southern Utah. Yeah, and so this park has tons of arches, as its name implies. They say over <laughs> 200, but I'm sure the number is actually a lot higher than that. Yes. That's probably, you know, reasonable-sized arches. Uh, but what happened was you're getting layers of sandstone with some salt in between because this was kind of a shallow landlocked sea at one point. And salt is very buoyant and it actually flows on geologic time. So thanks to some faulting and unroofing, the salt was able to push up and make giant anticlines. And that actually eroded away then to leave these fins that holes eroded into where there were weaknesses in the rock and that's how we got the arches right exactly so if you think about something being up warped as we would call it so as it gets sort of stretched upward these big 
fractures form in it. And the fractures are the conduits for wind and rain and especially frost. Ice is a, the biggest mechanical weathering that we have. And the ice frost wedging is what really carves a lot of this landscape because it's the high desert. So it gets really cold at night. And those big temperature ranges are what create this really neat landscape. Yeah. And I will say there are a couple of units in the park. But the one that you're going to spend almost your entire visit looking at is the Entrada Formation, which is Pennsylvanian. And it's this gorgeous red sandstone. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, and throughout all of southern Utah, the Entrada just forms these massive, massive spires and arches and goblins and all kinds of different <laughs> cool um, hoodoos. That's another one. Um <laughs> All kinds of yes, really fun. Yes, We talked about hoodoos before. <laughs> exactly. So these really fun um, sedimentary units. And, you know, every park out there has something like a balancing rock, which is balanced rocked, is one of them in arches. That's pretty famous hoodoo. And so, of course, there's the classic delicate arch that you have to make the hike up the long, <laughs> steeper than it looks slope yes. to get to. Yes, it is. But it's very worth it. Uh, but I really, if somebody goes, I would encourage you to go on some of the longer trails. Uh, when I was there, I think I spent two or three days doing trails. And I hiked back to Navajo Arch, which is actually my favorite because I was the only person out there. Mm-hmm. And took some of the best pictures that I've ever taken, I think, of geology. Uh, just absolutely beautiful. If you go in the late afternoon when the light's just right, it's wonderful. Though going in the summer, you really learn carry all the water you possibly can. Uh, yes, exactly. That's when we were there in um, the middle of June, and it was already 104 degrees. And, um, you know, I had my kiddo with me, so we didn't go on too many hikes. But there are a lot of really accessible arches as well. But I would agree with John. You should definitely take some of the less trodden paths. And speaking of that, have you ever read the book Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey? You know, I have it, but I have not read it yet. Is, it's great, and it's all about arches. Um, Ed Abbey is obviously a big naturalist, and he wrote these amazing books, and I highly recommend if you're anywhere interested in the landscape of southern Utah, Desert Solitaire is a great book, but it was all about his time there as a uh, park ranger, a voluntary, basically, park ranger, and it really tells a lot about both the people and the landscape. You know, come to think of it, I believe you're the one that recommended that book to me, and I bought it not too long ago. <laughs> I probably did. <laughs> I, I try to extol its virtues because it's just amazing. So you should read that, John. <laughs> You've told me about lots of great geology books, and then I tell you about lots of great uh, geology, more geophysics-oriented. You know, they have equations in them books. <laughs> I tolerate those sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you're the one that got me started on the whole John McPhee series. See, and everyone w- wants to become a geologist after you read John McPhee. Um, something we will put in the show notes, too, is there are some videos out there where people have been hiking in arches, and they've captured some of these arches collapsing. And it's usually early morning, yes. right, as the frost begins to melt and then expand, and then you get collapse. And some of them are kind of cool, so we'll link some of those in the show notes. Yeah, and some of the arches have had massive pieces fall off, yes. like could crush crowd-sized 
hunks of rock. <laughs> uh, yes, they're, they're terrifying. And there's lots of sounds of that in the desert. All the geologists I talk to that do any work out in Nevada and Utah talk about hearing the rocks basically moving all night long due to frost wedging. And it's kind of, hmm, it's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, and the last thing I will say about this before we move on so we don't go too long <laughs> is book your campsite early if you're going <laughs> to camp there. Yes, absolutely. And go into downtown Moab and there's a microbrewery in downtown that is spectacular. <laughs> uh, there's also some really good coffee shops for breakfast and you can get excellent breakfast burritos in Moab as well. And yes, like we're talking six months ahead of time. It's really hard to camp in Arches. But you know what's local and close by that is not hard to camp in and that is Canyonlands National Park. Yeah, no, we're, we're going to fight over this one because this was my <laughs> second pick too. This one was actually my first pick. Um, I do love Glacier, but Canyonlands is an amazing park. Um, it, I, just, I can't even talk about it. it. It gets me so... So the cool thing about Canyonlands is it's just this amazing late Paleozoic, Mesozoic, all these beautiful sandstones, and it's got all the same sort of features as uh, Arches does, but no one is ever there. Yes, <laughs> and it is remote. Yes, it really is. It's, it's pretty large as well. It's actually the largest natural park, er, national park in Utah, um, so there's a lot of ground you could cover, and I don't know if that's what turns people off, is that you just kind of... There's not a lot of stuff right off the road. You really got to hike it out to see some of these amazing things. But since you love salt domes, um, Upheaval Dome is one of the coolest features in Canyonlands as well. Yes. So Canyonlands has several different areas. You can go to Island in the Sky, Upheaval Dome, the Needles. Uh, and each one of them probably deserves multiple days of your time if you wanted to do the, do the whole park right. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, I've only ever spent a couple of days at a time, and I know I haven't even begun to sort of scratch the surface of everything that you can see there. You know, the needles, and I know there's a lot of sort of controversy about um, upheaval dome in general, whether it's an eroded salt dome or whether it's actually an impact crater. So that's always exciting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the rocks there are really messed up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Upheaval dome is well worth it, and it's it's, it's a quick hike just to get up to the rim of it, and it's very strange looking. So it's always fun to um, have some of these geologic mysteries. I will encourage you because, like Shan said, there's not many people there. When I went initially, I stopped by one of the ranger centers, and I think I was one of one or two people in there. But I said, oh, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm into geology, so what can you tell me about the geology here? And the ranger was so excited that someone wanted to know about the geology, went back and got this huge box of rocks and made the stratigraphic column on the table for me oh, out of actual awesome. rocks. <laughs> and we talked about this for about an hour. It was one of the best experiences I've had with a park ranger. I mean, that's super all, all park ranger experiences are good, but this one was great. <laughs> that's super great. That's just a testament as to how few people, you know, take the time to go out there. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of great experience that you could have, your kids, your family, you know, this is what these park rangers love to do. And it's a beautiful landscape. Yeah. And when I was there, there had been a bunch of wildfires, well, everywhere that year. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it was a little bit hazy, but it was still absolutely gorgeous. Island in the sky is a great place to go see. It's just 
beautiful. Oh yeah. Um, the, uh, it's a really famous pictures are from Canyon lens. I think people probably don't even realize that, you know, because the, the Colorado and the green river confluences there and it just carves these huge deep canyons that are spectacular and really iconic basically. Absolutely. But I'm looking at our show counter and we're going to go long if we're not careful. <laughs> so. Well, I've got a good segue. So speaking of geologic mysteries like Upheaval Dome, that leads us to our fun paper <laughs> Friday. <laughs> so you found this fun paper, and I have to say you, you may take the cake for this. Uh, so you're really much better at finding these than I am, but I, I will agree this is a really good one. <laughs> so it comes from the <laughs> Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, and the title... Uh, it's by Bollinger et al., but the title is Are Full or Empty Beer Bottles Sturdier and Does Their Fracture Threshold Suffice to Break the Human Skull? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so this is, well, it's got around six authors on it, it looks like, and it's an entire paper about exactly that. <laughs> We're going to break a bunch of beer bottles and measure how much force it takes to do that <laughs> and then compare that to how much force it took to break the skull of a cadaver head. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so <laughs> um, I'll go ahead and let you talk about your favorite part of the paper because it's a good it's in the intro here, <laughs> which says yeah. So third 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 paragraph in it says the half liter refillable beer bottle is, according to the author's own experience, a commonly utilized <laughs> instrument in physical disputes. <laughs> That's probably one of the best lines in a scientific paper. <laughs> <laughs> But so these uh, these people wrote this paper because often they were called, because obviously this is in the jur Journal of Forensics, um, they were called to ask, you know, how much damage could a beer bottle actually inflict? And does it matter whether it's full or empty? And it turns out it really does matter. And it's kind of counterintuitive, actually. Yeah, so when you first hear this, you might say, ah, that can't be. But then pause and think about it for about two minutes. So... <laughs> <laughs> it actually turns out that full beer bottles are weaker than their empty counterparts. Quite a bit weaker, too, because full beer bottles could tolerate energies up to 25 joules before they break, 25 to 30. And then it's 40 for empty beer bottles. And this was my favorite part is, is why, because it is counterintuitive and it has to do with what's in the bottle. Right. So first, beer is, well, it's a fluid. Right. And it's really not that compressible. I mean, it's water, which, yeah, there's a little bit of compressibility there, but not much compared to air. Right. So when you hit the beer bottle, that energy is transferred for the, through the fluid very efficiently, not absorbed in compressing the air and heating it slightly to the other side of the bottle. Right. And then the other wonderful thing about beer is that it's carbonated. And that's actually um, the other major factor in full beer bottles not breaking is the gas pressure due to the carbonation. Yeah, and they mention this in there that home brewers know this, and I know several <laughs> people that have homebrewed and had their beer sadly explode. Exactly. The line, as every incautious home brewer knows, even small amounts of gas pressure can cause bottles to explode. So that leads to the fact that empty beer bottles, if your point is to fracture somebody's skull, are the way to go. So drink your beer first before you get into a bar fight. 
Right. And of course, they say, well, this is only considering the use of beer bottles as clubs, not as puncture objects. So if you break the end like you see in the Westerns or that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. These were just a beer bottle whacking basically a, the equivalent of a human skull is what they did. They didn't use cadavers, but they used sort of a putty <laughs> and board combo that would... <laughs> That would right. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is it's a really funny picture of them having their little putty and board in a little bathtub, and then they drop a steel ball, which equates to the pressure of a beer bottle hitting a human skull. And yes, they say it could cause some serious damage. Yeah, and then where they get the numbers for how much energy it actually takes to fracture a skull are what comes from a cadaver. tests but i believe that was another study they also which this seemed like maybe a little bit of overkill but i'm very glad they did it uh they did a pretty much a cat scan of the beer bottle to get the glass thickness at different points to figure out where would be the best place to use right exactly the weakest place and where would be the best place to hit somebody with it (laughs) this is a very well thought out study so i don't know what the authors experienced but (laughs) he turned it into a really cool paper in the journal of forensic and legal medicine That is your Fun Paper Friday. Be sure to check it out. Link will be in the show notes. If you have an idea for a Fun Paper Friday, send it to us. And if you're going to any national parks or doing some cool field work, or if you're stuck in a lab like me, (laughs) send us some photos. We love to share them on Twitter and Facebook. So if they want to do that, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? They can email us those photos, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And on Twitter, we are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. That's right. And until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.